Uh, today, our assistant pastor, Ben Yi, is bringing the message. Uh, so why don't you put your hands together and welcome uh, Ben as he comes. Thanks, Brian. Well, I am excited to uh, sh- uh, continue our series in the book of John, our, our series called Jesus Speaks. And as I was get, uh, just sitting here watching um, Brian give the announcements, I was thinking, you know, it's kind of nice the first service. You know, there's not as many people in the room, so you might feel like the second service is the big deal, but at least from, from my perspective, you get to hear me preach this fresh. You know, when Brian and I get up here, we're fresh. You know, we haven't just said these things to a bunch of people. So, uh, so there's a lot of good things about uh, the, the first service. Well, here's a question for you. What does Jesus look like? What did Jesus look like? This was the question that loomed over a church-wide discussion in the church where I grew up. I was in high school at the time, and uh, our church, the, there was a Lutheran church, um, our, my family attended there, and they had arranged to have one of the famed artists of the city come and paint a, a picture of Jesus onto the front um, center part of the stage. So for us, it'd be like right here, a picture of Jesus. It was like going to be this mural size picture um, of Jesus. This was no ordinary artist. His paintings were featured in a few prominent places in the city, and there were these fairly sizable murals. And and what made them so unique um, was not that they were murals or that they were large, but how lifelike they were. It was like they looked real. They looked 3D. In one place, he had painted a picture of an angel looking out of a second-story window, and when I was younger, I looked up at that window, and I thought there was a guy looking out of the window. And then my mom said, look closer, and yeah, there were some wings on the angel, and I said, oh, that's, that's a painting. He was a masterful painter, and they had arranged to have him paint a picture of Jesus right in the middle of the back wall of the sanctuary. Currently in that spot, there was this steepled structure that had some lights on it, and it looked like it was kind of from a Gothic era. Um, I, didn't, I didn't think it looked very nice. Um, but So this was a big change, and the church uh, communicated to the congregation that they wanted some feedback. And so they unveiled this picture of what it was going to look like, a real large picture, and they began to receive some feedback. And it was interesting to hear what people said as they sought feedback. Some people felt that Jesus was too tall. And this was, this was you know, it was like supposed to be like regular size. It wasn't going to be like a ginormous Jesus. It was going to be like regular size. Some people felt like Jesus was too tall. Others felt like Jesus looked too American. Also, he's a little too tan, they said. Why does he have such a bushy beard? Some said he, he looks too much like the artist, He's not wearing the traditional, Jesus, the, the traditional Jewish clothes. Other people liked the steepled thing, and they didn't want to see that go. There were lots of very, very strong opinions about what Jesus looked like. And there were so many concerns about putting this huge uh, mural-sized picture in the middle of the sanctuary that in the end, it was too much, and it never happened. For a long time, people have debated what Jesus would have looked like. But the debate over what Jesus looked like is small beans in comparison to the debate over who Jesus really was. If you had to describe Jesus, how would you paint a verbal picture of him? What are the essential elements to include? 
How would you how about how would you how would you describe his personality? What would you say about his personality? How would you describe his connection to God? There's this widely popular idea that Jesus was a lot like Socrates. He was a wise teacher that taught people about morality, how to think about the world. There's this view that Jesus was a revolutionary, that he was trying to generate this revolt of the lower classes up against the upper class elite. There's the view that that Jesus did have some sort of spiritual source, that he was sent from God, much like a prophet, but that he wasn't God himself. These are views that we have of Jesus. Even in his own day, Jesus was a subject of a lot of debate. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 7 in the book of John, and I, and I want to, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you, grab that Bible, we're going to be in there, John chapter 7, um, and here in John chapter 7, there are lots of discussion between bystanders about what different people think about Jesus. Jesus, the itinerant teacher from Galilee, has arrived in the big city for the big celebration. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, an eight-day God-ordained party, and thousands of people have streamed in from the countryside into Jerusalem to be a part of this celebration and to pay their respects to God at His temple. And Jesus, too, He's come up, down, down from the countryside into the big city, and He is actually one of the big news items in town. People are talking about Him. It's been said that He can do miracles and can heal people. Everyone who has heard his teachings say that it's unlike anything they've ever heard. And and there's even some people who are saying he might be the Messiah, the Messiah that the Jews have been looking for. A king that could rescue Israel from their Roman rulers and make Israel this, this big nation on the international landscape. Let's take a look at what some of these people say. Verse 12, John chapter 7, verse 12. We got it on the slides here. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. The religious leaders in Jerusalem didn't like Jesus. If you remember, he drove out that animal selling business that they were doing in the temple courts, and uh, they did not like that. And Jesus, by doing that, he became their enemy. Here's what some other people say. Verse 25, at that point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But, but, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. And here's another one, verse, verse 31. Many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he do more, perform more signs than this man? Who is this Jesus guy? This is the question that everyone is wondering. Fortunately, Jesus has a lot to say about himself. It's actually a little bit odd, if you've noticed. Um, For a religious teacher who's supposed to be teaching people about God, Jesus has a lot to say about himself. Who is Jesus? Is he a teacher of morality? Is he a prophet telling us about the future? Is he just another man, another rabbi, or does he have some sort of special spiritual connection? 
What is his agenda? Is he rescuing the poor? Is he reforming religious practice? Is he teaching people about a heightened stage of enlightenment? What is he here to do? These are the questions that the people of this day were consumed with, and these are the questions that I want you to hold up with, your, with, with what we're talking about as we go through a, a passage where Jesus speaks about himself in John chapter 7. Last week, we took a look at when Jesus identified himself as the bread of life. But in this passage, Jesus describes himself using an illustration of water and thirst. And it's, it's interesting. So take, let's take a look at it. Starting at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The first thing we recognize right off the bat is that Jesus is the source of the Spirit of God. And we have John to thank for that. He's the one who wrote this book. He's the one who lived with Jesus, who heard these words. And he, re- he tells us this is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the Spirit of God. When he says streams of living water will flow from within him, he's talking about God's Spirit flowing inside of you, of believers. Right before Jesus left this earth, he gathered his disciples together and he imparted the Holy Spirit of God into their souls permanently. And and we learn from the teaching of the disciples that it wasn't just um, the Holy Spirit entering the disciples, but it was the Holy Spirit was now going to live inside of anyone who believed in Jesus and put their life's trust in his hands. If you have put your trust in Jesus, God has fused himself to your soul through the Holy Spirit. He now lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit's role in our lives is a very important one. The Holy Spirit comforts us and teaches us. He guides us. He guides us through decisions that we have to make. He nudges us to do good things, and when we're straying from the path, he, uh, he warns us and says, hey, he bothers us. He empowers us to make a difference in people's lives through service. He provides us with gifts or spiritual talents that he can use to bring about good in people's lives. But most importantly, the Holy Spirit is just with us, just with us. God, through his Holy Spirit, has taken up residence in our souls because of our faith in Christ, and he promises to be with us through everything and anything. Some people often wonder what the Holy Spirit feels like. It's tough to describe because it's the spiritual relationship, and I think a lot of people uh, sense and experience Him differently. But if you'd like a description, I think um, the best place to get a description is from a newer Christian. Newer Christians are fresh off of an experience with the Holy Spirit, where um, you know they, they, they have just recently been filled with the Holy Spirit. And most importantly, for a newer Christian, they, they are still vividly remembering what it's like to live without God, what that feels like. It's a very different feeling. When I was a teen, there was this Christian band called P.O.D., and uh, it means payable on death, and they were a Christian band, and they came out with a song, Alive. Um, any, does anyone here remember this song? I want to see. Yeah, so some, some people, all right, so yeah. So um, they came out with this song called Alive, 
And uh, it, was, it was one of the top MTV songs of the year. It's kind of cool. Um, and the lyrics, I think, are in line with the sort of things that people say when they have begun to experience the Holy Spirit in their lives. And the lyrics go like this. I feel so alive for the very first time. I can't deny you. I feel so alive. I feel so alive for the very first time, and I think I can fly. <laughs> now, obviously, what they're describing here is a really awesome experience where you're feeling on top of the world. But lots of people have experiences where they're feeling on top of the world, right? I mean, people, people experience that all the time. That's not very um, unusual. But what's different about this experience is that it's not a temporary experience, and it's much more profound and much more life-changing than an emotional high. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, God remains with you from day to day and month to month. He never leaves you. And unlike an emotional high, you wake up the next morning, and it's still wonderful to have God be a part of your life. It's a wonderfulness that isn't rooted in your circumstances. Yes, there are hard times for Christians, but even in those hard times... There's this, there's this awareness, this ability to take your struggles to God and to have Him comfort you in the midst of them. And it's very different from living without hope. The best part of having the Holy Spirit inside of you is that the Holy Spirit enables us to be connected with God every single day of our lives. God has given us a special gift to be able to connect with Him every day, no matter where we are. Before, before Jesus came into the world, the Scriptures explained that God's Spirit hovered over the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that box? Um, you remember um, uh, Indiana Jones, you know, that box that you're not supposed to open? Um, there's got the little winged creatures. God's Spirit hovered over the winged creatures, not in the box, above it. And so if you wanted to worship God, if you wanted to experience God, you had to travel to the temple and pray towards the temple where God's Spirit was. And then you could have an experience with God. Sometimes God's Spirit filled a place. Sometimes God's Spirit was upon a prophet. But you, could, you just couldn't experience God from wherever. You had to go where He chose to be, or you had to be so blessed that God happened to come to where you were at if you wanted to experience God. But now, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of believers, you have access to God Himself wherever. You go to the store, you can meet with God there. You go to work, you can meet with God there. You go across the country, take a walk outside, you go to school, hang out with your friends. Anywhere you want to go, God is right there, and you can meet with Him. Some people get confused. Um, I think there's, you know, some people you feel like, well, that doesn't really feel, that doesn't feel that way. Some people get confused. I think there's this misconception. They come away from prayer um, or reading their Bible, and they, you know, they go to church, and they don't feel change. They say, I, I don't really feel any different. Last time I felt different, but this time I don't feel any different. And so they feel like they haven't been able to connect with God. Now, let's say you take advantage of God's promise to be with you every day, and you pray to Him in the mornings. Let's say you're doing that, and you, you're not always going to come away from those meetings feeling changed. You may say, you know, I don't really feel any different. I don't know if I feel changed. And that is normal because God isn't only trying to change how you feel. He's trying to change how you feel, but He's also trying to change how you think. 
And he's also trying to change your attitudes and your heart and your habits. He's trying to change all of you, everything about you he's trying to change. So you're not always going to feel different. So when you take each, each, each day to meet with God, remember that you are taking advantage of a special benefit, that you get to be in the presence of God. And there's a principle as you do this, the more you do this. You will be changed. Sometimes the way you feel will be changed, and sometimes the way you think will be changed. Sometimes you will have the strength to overcome a bad habit. But no matter what happens, when you have spent time in the presence of God, there's a principle that people who experience God have found, you always come away changed. That is who He is. He changes people's lives. And if over time, if you're spending a lot of time with Him, over time you're going to see a lot of change. In fact, you're going to see a river of good change flowing through your life. So when Jesus stands up in the temple court and declares that whoever believes in him will have this river of water flowing within them, he is declaring that he, Jesus, is the source of the Spirit of God. And so as long as you believe, as long as you're going to take advantage of this opportunity to connect with God through the Holy Spirit, there is going to be a river of good change flowing through your life every day. So Jesus is declaring that he is the source of the Spirit of God being poured out into people's lives. But that isn't all he's saying. It's one of those statements with many, many meanings. When Jesus stands up in front of this crowd and says, let anyone who is thirsty and come to me and drink, he's also declaring two things that I think are better understand when we have some background info. So I want to give you some background info. If you take a look here in verse 37, um, if you have your Bibles open, if you, I'll, I'll remind you of what it says. He sa- it says that he stood up and he said these things on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is speaking during the Feast of Tabernacles, and I think this sheds a lot of light on what this means and, uh, and then what, yeah, just what it means and what, what the impact is for you and me. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the harvest festivals for the Jewish people. It was one of those times of year when people um, came from far and wide to the temple to honor God with their sacrifices. Well, there's this prophecy about this. Um, it's, it's a prophecy in Zechariah, and it began, began to be associated, for whatever reason, with the Feast of Tabernacles. And here's what the prophecy says. You don't have to turn there. Um, we're going to have it up on the screen. It's coming out of Zechariah chapter 14, verse 7. He's talking about this special day in the future when the entire world will be transformed. That's the backdrop. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east of the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. So this is Zechariah 14. This is, this is a prophecy. So living water is going to flow out of Jerusalem. Living water, by the way, is just a technical term for uh, flowing water, fresh water. Um, you know, it, it basically is water that is moving around, not stagnant. So if you, if you have water, like, coming out of a, st- a stream, that's living water. If you've got living water in a cup, that's not living water. Or if you've got water in a cup, it's not living water. So fresh water is going to spring up and flow from Jerusalem, and when it does, there will be a time when God will be king over all of the earth, and as you read, it becomes very clear that this is a time that is talking about when the Messiah will reign as king in Jerusalem, and the country will have peace. 
Now, there's, that's, that's one of the prophecies, but there's another one that jives in as well. Ezekiel 47. We're not going to read it, but, but essentially what happens in Ezekiel 47 is that Ezekiel has this vision from God where water is coming out of the front door of the temple. And as Ezekiel follows this water coming out the front door of the temple, it, be, it starts as a trickle and it gets bigger and bigger until it becomes this river just flowing out from Jerusalem. And he sees this multitude of trees next to this river, and everything that this river touches is filled with life. That's the vision. So in the scriptures, there's this anticipation that one day water will flow out of the foundation of the temple and give life to the world. And there's, it's such a strong anticipation that it actually became a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, if you were visiting Jerusalem for the feast, every morning for a full week, you would rise early to watch this majestic procession where priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam and they would dip a pitcher of water in the Pool of Siloam and they would march it through the streets. This, this grand procession, they'd march around the altar seven times. They would, have a, they, would, they would go right up to the altar and they'd have a pitcher full of water and they'd have a pitcher full of wine and they would enact what they were hoping would one day happen. The priest would recite this verse from Isaiah. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's what he would say. And then he would slowly pour this pitcher of water way up high, not fast, slowly pour it, and it would go down into a bowl on the altar. And that bowl had a little drain pipe, and it would drain from there down further. He would pour it out, and then they would do the same thing with the wine. This was a big deal. It was a celebration of the highest magnitude. They had songs about the water. They had souvenirs about the water. There was dancing. There was feasting. This was, was so much of a celebration that the rabbis actually used to say, one, what did they say? He said, one who has never witnessed rejoicing at the place of the water drawing has never seen true joy in his life. That's the sort of festival that this was. All of this, of course, was not the true celebration, right? It was merely a symbol of what they were hoping for, what they would hope would one day happen when water would come out of the temple doors and bring life in this messianic age that would happen. So in the midst of this grand procession where water was carried through the city streets, and poured out over the altar, and people rejoiced and talk, talked about the Messiah coming and this water coming. And Jesus stands up on the front steps of the temple, and he shouts to get everybody's attention. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What Jesus is saying is, today is the day. You don't have to wait to receive those life-giving waters. You can get them right now if you will believe on him. Life-giving water was beginning to pour out from those temple courts that very day. And there's lots of confusion, you know, about whether Jesus was a prophet, a good rabbi, or someone who was twisting the Scriptures for his own agenda. But Jesus gets up to speak about himself, and he says, today these Scriptures are being fulfilled. And he points to himself as the Messiah right in that statement. 
The Jewish leaders knew exactly what he was talking about, and the people were certainly wondering if that was the case. But there's another thing that Jesus is saying about himself in this proclamation, and it's, it's, it's probably the most obvious one, um, but I, I think really for us today, I would argue it's the most important one. And to understand what else he is saying in this proclamation, all you have to do is put yourself in the shoes of someone um, that morning or that, that afternoon. You've pushed through all the crowds to get a glimpse of that water being carried in a pitcher, and everyone is singing about water, water, water. It's a hot day at the end of the summer. Water flowing from the temple, that's what's going to happen. They're singing, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. All you can think about is water. You're thinking about the prophecy that one day water will flow from the temple and all these trees will sprout up next to it and they'll bear fruit year-round and there'll be this abundance of food. There'll be joy all around. And then with everything else, you gather and you watch as the priest slowly pours that water from up high, slowly, slowly down into the bowl, and you watch as it drains out. How are you feeling? You're thirsty. You're thirsty. You are thirsty for real water, and you are thirsty for that water of the prophecy. You are thirsty for the Messiah. You are thirsty for the joy and the satisfaction that you, will know, you know will come with that age. You are thirsty, and you can feel it in your body, and you can feel it in your soul. You are thirsty. And then Jesus gets up and he says, is anybody thirsty? (laughs) If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And what is unique here is that Jesus doesn't say, if anyone is thirsty, I have water for you to drink. He doesn't say, if anyone is thirsty, I know where you can get water, let me tell you. He doesn't say, don't worry, water is coming soon. Jesus says, come to me and drink. Jesus is tapping into their thirst for physical water and their thirst for the water of the future, and he's tapping into their spiritual thirst for joy and satisfaction in life. He's saying, you are thirsty and you are thirsty for me. I am what you're thirsty for. Jesus is telling people who he is. He is what they have been longing for their whole lives. He is the quenching of the thirst of their souls. He is the life and joy and blessing that they longed for. It's not a ritual, not a celebration, not even Jesus' own ideas or his own teaching. They were longing for him the person of Jesus, the Messiah, God in human flesh, God himself. That's what they were longing for. That day, some, some people said, this guy has got to be a prophet. Others said, I wonder if he is the Messiah. The question is a personal one, and it's one that you have to answer. Who is Jesus Is he like Socrates, teaching personal and public morality, but steering clear of religious statements? Is he Moses, a miracle worker and a prophet, a leader of the people? Was he simply a charismatic speaker? Of course, Christians believe that he was the Messiah. But what you need to realize 
is that you can't agree with that on its own because the Christian belief that Jesus was the Messiah has all these connotations that come along with it. Messiah in our culture, you know, it's taken on a new meaning, right? We have messiahs showing up in movies nowadays. And it's come to mean a savior or a spiritual guru who dispenses spiritual knowledge and helps people obtain enlightenment. That's, that's the best, my guess, best guess of what Messiah has come to mean in our culture. But the Jewish conception of Messiah, which of course is the most important one because that's where the prophecies originate, the Jewish conception of Messiah meant a ruler, a king. And in order to accept someone as Messiah, you had to accept the fact that this person was going to rule over you. They had a right to rule over you. To believe in someone as the Messiah was to accept them as your king. It was to acknowledge their position of authority in your life and your position of submission to them. And for Jesus, it even meant more than this. Because when Jesus invited people to receive him as the Messiah, he didn't just want to be their king. He wanted to be involved in their lives. He wanted the full devotion of their lives. He wanted their trust, their leadership, their willingness to obey, their friendship, their service, their love. He wanted everything. And you can't say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. You must say, yes, Jesus, you are my Messiah. You have the full devotion of my life and you have the free reign and involvement in my life. As much as you want because you are God and you have bought me with your sacrifice on the cross. You've bought me. That's what it looks like to say Jesus is the Messiah. Don't call him a Messiah if you've got a puppet Messiah in your head that um, gives you whatever you want and lets you do as you please. Jesus is, the, is a Messiah who wants the full involvement in your life. And when you let Jesus into your life, let him be your Messiah, there's going to be a river of good change flowing through your life. You will be one of those trees in Ezekiel where it says, and I quote, here's a quote from Ezekiel, fruit trees of all kinds will grow up on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Let's stand.